In December of 1990, a victim turned up in an underdeveloped, almost forgotten, lower-class area far of far south Dallas. She was a larger woman, naked except for a t-shirt and a bra, which had been pushed up over her breast. Her eyes were shut. Her face and chest were badly bruised. Apparently, the killer had thought it would be best to beat her before firing a 44 caliber bullet into her head. A resident of the neighborhood was so horrified by what he saw that he rushed inside his home and brought out a flowered bedsheet to cover the young woman's body. A police officer on the scene immediately recognized the woman as Mary Pratt, age 33, who was a veteran sex worker and often worked at the Star Motel in Oak Cliff. While it's not unusual for at that time for the sex workers in this area to get beaten, almost nightly a girl would complain about a trick quote, jumping bad on her, punching her, kicking her, even trying to run her over with a car. But for a sex worker in this area to be murdered was unusual, especially when it happened to someone who happened to be as well-liked as Mary Pratt. Mary wasn't really a brazen sex worker. She didn't stand on the street and flag down customers because she rarely had any extra spending money. The money that she got went to drugs. She never bought sexy clothes or lingerie. She stood quietly on the corner and typically wore blue jeans, tennis shoes, and smaller t-shirts that showed off her breasts. And occasionally, at the end of the night, she asked one of her regulars to drive her to her parents' home in the South Dallas suburb of Lancaster. Mary's parents were older retired people, and they never knew about their child's double life. They would call out goodnight to her as she climbed into her childhood bed. Mary Pratt's file was handed over to Joseph, to John Westphalen, a short, ruddy-faced homicide detective at the Dallas Police Department. In the homicide circles, John was something of a character. Defense attorneys loved to complain about his blustery, intimidating interrogation tactics, but he was one of the department's most tenacious investigators. He took one look at the Pratt file and realized that the case would depend more on good luck than it would good detective work. Pratt's killing was a dumped body case, quote-unquote, which is typically one of the hardest types of murders to solve. She had obviously been killed in one location and dumped somewhere else, so there were no witnesses to either the killing or the dumping, no murder weapon, little forensic evidence, no fingerprints, and no apparent motive. And considering the kind of felonious characters who nightly swung by the Star Motel, Mary Pratt could have been shot by just about anyone. John was accompanied by his partner, another homicide detective named Stan McNear, and they drove out to the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office to watch Mary Pratt's autopsy. A routine trip. Both men knew that the autopsy would show that there was a gunshot wound as the cause of death. And as Dr. Elizabeth Peacock, one of the staff's younger pathologists, put down her coffee cup to begin her examination, John Westphalen and Steve McNear stood a short distance from Stan McNear stood a short distance from the blue plastic cart where Mary Pratt's body lay. Peacock noted the needle tracks on Pratt's arms, the Playboy bunny tattoo on her chest, and the bullet hole in her head. She then opened Pratt's right eyelid, and she then opened the left. My God, she exclaimed, they're gone. There were no eyeballs, no tissue, nothing. Mary Pratt's eyes had been cut out and removed so carefully that her upper and lower eyelids were left undisturbed. Peacock was dumbfounded. This was not an operation that was taught in medical school. 
the killer would have had to know how to slip a knife around the eyes, making sure not to injure the adjoining skin, and then cut the six major muscles holding each eye in the socket, as well as the rope-tough optical nerve. With the eyelids shut, it was impossible to tell that the eyes were missing, and surely whoever had had to have done this would have had a lot of practice on someone or something else. You are now listening to Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V. After they realized that Mary Pratt's eyeballs were missing, John Westphalen contacted the FBI's Violent Crimes Apprehension Program Unit, and through its computers, the FBI kept data on the nation's most unusual and strange depraved mutilations. Bodies chopped up, organs removed, even eyes punctured with a knife as a result of a frenzied attack. But the FBI agent told Officer Westphalen that he had found no listing anywhere of such a surgically precise cutting. And longtime Dallas cops take pride in acting utterly unaffected by anything that comes their way, but this time, Westphalen couldn't help it. What kind of person, he asked Stan McNear, would want a girl's eyeballs? And frankly, that's a fair question. Who would want a girl's eyeballs? In this case, we have the answer. Charles Albright was born in Amarillo, Texas, and was adopted from an orphanage by Dell and Fred Albright, his parents. They were extremely, extremely protective of the child when they were growing up, and his mother, Dell, doted on him so much and helped him and paid so much attention to him that, in fact, with her studying with him at home, he was able to move up two full grades in school. From what Dell told Charles about his birth mother, she was an exceptional law student, but at 16 years old, she had secretly married another student and had become pregnant. And when the girl's father found out, he demanded that she annul the marriage and give up the baby for adoption. Otherwise, she'd be cut off from her family. And Dell made sure that Charles knew that she would never abandon him. She pampered and preened over him. And yet his mother sometimes went to extremes. When Charles was a small child, she occasionally put him in little girl's dresses and gave him a doll, or she would change him two or three times a day to keep dirt off him. Afraid that she might touch dog, that he might touch dog feces and get polio, she took him to the Parkland Hospital to see the polio patients locked in their iron lungs. You can spend the rest of your life here, Dell would solemnly tell her son. And when he was less than a year old, Dell put him in a dark room as punishment for chewing on a tape measure. When he wouldn't take a nap, she would tie him to his bed. When he wouldn't drink his milk, she would spank him. People around the neighborhood talked about Dell Albright's odd nature, and no one could ever remember her buying herself a dress. She kept a scarf over her head and wore clothes from Goodwill. And although she and her husband Fred weren't poor, she usually scrimped at mealtimes, even picking up the old bones the local butcher threw in the box for his dog. She could use them, she would say, for soup. 
Not that Charles ever openly complained. He appreciated that his mother taught him manners. Dell told him to speak politely about other people or, quote, say nothing at all. She taught him to respect women, especially when it came to sex. She lectured him about the way his father acted. And when Fred saw her in the bedroom in her bra and panties, he tried to grab her. When she was going to have none of that, she was going to make sure that Charlie never tried anything like that with his girlfriends. And as he grew older, she insisted on chauffeuring him every time he was on a date. She would even call the girl's parents ahead of time to let them know that her son would not be doing anything untoward. And if Dell seemed overprotective, friends said, surely it was because she had never raised a child before. Charles himself recognized how fiercely she wanted him to succeed. Dell also is the one who introduced Charles to the world of taxidermy. When he was 11 years old, she enrolled him in a mail order course, the Northwestern School of Taxidermy. As Charles set to work on the dead birds he found, Dell was right beside him. She showed him how to use all the tools. The knife used to cut the, school, the skull, the little spoon used to scoop out the brains, and the scalpel required to cut away the eyes from their sockets. The forceps that pulled out the eyes. She even skinned the first bird for him, teaching him not to how not to cut too deep. Dutifully, Charles spent hours on these taxidermy courses, stuffing and mounting birds, making them look as lifelike as possible. And then he'd be ready for the crowning touch, the eyes. He used to go to the taxidermy shop and stare at the boxes of full, glorious fake eyes. Owl's eyes, eagle's eyes, deer's eyes. He loved their iridescent gleam, and he wished he could collect them the way other boys collected marbles. And yet, his mother Dell wouldn't let him. She told him that taxidermist eyes were too expensive, and there was a better, cheaper way. She would open her sewing kit, and she would place the birds into the china cabinet when they were finished in the front of the house. The birds have no eyes. Instead, sewn tightly against their delicate feathered faces were two dark buttons, each simmering dully in the living room light. When, Charlie, when Charles Albright transferred to Arkansas State Teachers College in Conway, Arkansas, it didn't take him long to become one of the most popular students. He was remarkably well-rounded. He was president of the French Club, business manager of the yearbook, a member of the school choir, a halfback on the football team. When he signed up for a drawing course, the art professor was so impressed with Charles's good looks that he made him the class model. And yet Charlie wasn't known as a goody two-shoes. He was a frat boy and a great college prankster. One time he snuck into the home economics building, got a load of food out of the fridge, and cooked a steak dinner for his buddies. Another time, on a dare, he broke into the physics professor's office in the middle of the day, picked the lock on the cabinet, and stole what, around, what was known around school as the unstealable physics test, raced down to make a copy of it, and had the test back in its place within an hour. The professor, who was teaching a class next door, never suspected a thing. When he had graduated Adminson High School at 15, he was something of a celebrity back home. And when Charlie was 14, Dell and Fred had purchased a piece of property in their neighborhood and gave it to him as a gift. Charlie sold it to buy more lots, and the Dallas Times-Herald published a story about him under the headline, World's Youngest Real Estate Man Amassing Nest Egg for College. And yet Charlie's love for mischief had never left him. He had received bad grades for in school for shooting rubber bands and crawling out of study hall. And then there was that time he'd accidentally set fire to his chemistry teacher's death dress and he had flunked out of a couple of courses because he was quote too bored to study and of course if his mother had found out he would have never heard the end of it so charles albright snuck into the school office took some report cards from a desk 
filled them in with all A's and proudly shown them, showed them to his teachers with his teachers and principal signatures perfectly forged. It was minor stuff, really. And if Char and as Charlie himself would later explain, I just didn't know what I was doing. If anybody tells the truth, they will say I never did a mean thing in all my life, but I did do a lot of mischievous things just to show off for the older kids. But after all this, Dell could not protect Charlie when he left home. And right after high school, he enrolled in North, North Texas State College in Denton. But by the end of his freshman year, he had been arrested by being a member of a burglary ring that broke into three stores and sold $700, several hundred dollars worth of merchandise. Charlie swears he didn't steal anything. But the other boys said he had asked them to keep the things in his dorm room for him. How was he supposed to know that they were stolen? Del Albright tried to go to these teachers and pay for the things that Charlie had stolen. She even tried to persuade the judge to let her act as Charlie's lawyers. Um, she even asked if she could take his place in prison. Yet the boy went to prison for jail for went to jail for a year, spending his 18th birthday there. And his mother, Del, meanwhile, worked to keep the matter hushed up so that nobody would know that her Charlie was a convicted felon. So by the time he got to Arkansas State Teachers College, this was his chance for a new start. He told his probation officer he was going to mend his ways. He went to date a, young, a lovely young English major named Betty Hester, and he made plans to marry her. He did truly brilliant work in science, although he hardly studied, and he made an A in his human anatomy course, because of course he did. It was said around school that Charlie was going to go far. He even talked about going to medical school and becoming a surgeon. But of course, Charlie always had to be the class clown. At some point, Charlie was caught at Arkansas State Teachers College with stolen items, including two handguns and a rifle and some petty cash. And at this point, he was expelled from the college, but they decided not to press charges. And apparently, unfazed by this, Charlie just decided that he would falsify a degree. So he sold documents and forged signatures, giving himself a fictitious bachelor's and master's degree. So he then married his college girlfriend, Betty, and they had a daughter. And he continued to forge checks and what was caught in this deception while teaching at a high school and was placed on probation. By 1965, he and his wife had separated and divorced in 1974. He was then caught stealing hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise from a hardware store and received a two-year prison sentence. Charlie only, received, only served about six months before he was released. And it is during this time that he began to befriend and gain the trust of his neighbors. He was even asked by local neighbors to babysit their kids. In 1991, while visiting some friends, he sexually molested their 14-year-old daughter. And for this, he received probation after prosecute, being prosecuted and pled guilty. He later claimed that he was innocent, but had pled guilty to avoid, quote, a hassle. In 1984, he applied to be a leader in the Boy Scouts of America and was obviously rejected. By 1985, in Arkansas, Albright met a woman named Dixie and invited her to live with him. Soon she was paying his bills and supporting him, and he was delivering newspapers in the early morning, apparently so that he could continue his habit of visiting with sex workers very early in the morning or late at night without arousing Dixie's suspicion. Now back to 1991 and Mary Pratt. Because the police hadn't released any information about 
her eyeballs being missing, her death had only warranted a two-paragraph story in the back sections of the local newspapers. In fact, when patrol officers John Matthews and Regina Smith began their daytime shift on December 13th, just a few hours after Pratt's body was found, they hadn't even heard about the crime. Only two and a half months before, the two officers had been assigned to a newly created beat on Jefferson Boulevard that included Pratt's streetwalking territory. One of the most popular shopping districts in Oak Cliff, Jefferson had deteriorated over the previous 25 years, a victim of urban blight, if you would like to call it that. Some storefronts were shuttered, others were barely profitable. The Texas Theater, infamous for being the site where Lee Harvey Oswald hid out after the Kennedy assassination, was padlocked. Matthews and Smith's assignment was to provide the, a police presence for the area, to become acquainted with the merchants, shake a lot of hands, crack down on small-time crimes like burglary, car theft, shoplifting, and, of course, prostitution. And in police circles, it was far from a glamorous beat. Other officers used to the action of the streets considered it more a public relations position. So each morning, Matthews and Smith began their day by cruising down Jefferson and talking to sex workers, and on a busy day, about 40 women, mostly black, some white, and few Hispanic, worked the area, charging anywhere from $15 to $50 per session. The Star was not a high-class call-girl operation. Matthews called the 40-room motel basically a sex worker condominium. The women there, most of them drug addicts, would have sex in a customer's car in a nearby alley or use a shared room with other sex workers. Then, money in hand, they would walk down a well-worn dirt path to one of the nearby dope houses and purchase heroin or crack. After a quick hit, they would be back out on the street again. Some of them would work nonstop for two or three days, never changing their clothes, never even taking time to eat until they finally crashed back at the motel or in the house of their quote unquote sugar daddy, which would be a regular customer who cared enough to provide them with basic necessities. None of this really phased Matthews. He was the son of a patrol officer in New York State and had grown up with the cops and robbers stories. And he had been in the Dallas department since he was 21 when he was patrolling Harry Hines Boulevard, one of the city's high crime and prostitution areas at the time. On the other hand, his partner, 31-year-old Regina Smith, decided to become a police officer and had never fired a gun, never seen a dead person, or had even been in a fight. She was a former supermarket cashier, a graduate of a fashion merchandising college, and the single mother of a six-year-old child. Nonetheless, inspired by a newspaper story about the need for more Black female police officers, she entered the Dallas Police Academy in 1988. Her instructors berated her for wearing too much jewelry, mocked that she shot a gun the way she shot her gun, and laughed when she couldn't finish her push-ups. But she refused to quit. After graduation, she was assigned one of the rougher night shifts, and she still wouldn't quit. But she was assigned to this Jefferson beat, and she discovered that she had a knack for speaking with sex workers. She wanted to talk to them, and she felt like it was her duty as an officer to try to improve their lives. She would talk to them and she even started a photo album that contained mug shots of them and she would wistfully leaf through the book the way some people pour over their high school annuals. In this particular morning, Smith was not surprised to see Veronica Rodriguez, a brazen sex worker who would try to flag down people even when she knew the cops were watching. Usually when she spotted Matthew, she would lean forward so he could see her cleavage. Rodriguez, who was barely 26, had lived a pretty miserable life. She had been arrested for prostitution numerous times, once when she was nine months pregnant. 
And all the baby, although that baby was stillborn, she was the mother of at least one other child, a baby born on a bed in the motel down the road from the star. As Matthews pulled the, the squad car along Ms. Rodriguez, Smith rolled down her window. She noticed a nasty gash on her forehead and a thin knife cut across her neck, and she asked what happened, to which Rodriguez replied, don't arrest me, I almost got killed. Rodriguez recounted to the, the officers that the previous night she had been picked up by a, a guy and driven a long way south to a field and then raped. The man, a white man, she said, then tried to kill her, but she escaped and ran towards a house. The man at the house just happened to be someone she knew. He also just happened to know the man who was trying to kill her. Matthews and Smith gave each other a look, because at this point, Rodriguez was a notorious liar, and there was no doubt that she had been in some kind of fight, but in the middle of nowhere, she ran right into the house of someone she knew. They felt like this might be another of her pity stories, which she often told the cops so they would feel sorry for her and leave her alone. Yet two days later, on an afternoon drive past the star, they saw Rodriguez again. This time, she was sitting with a balding, middle-aged white man in the cab of an 18-wheeler. While Matthews went to one side of the truck to get Rodriguez and escorted to the squad car, Smith went to the other to speak to the man. She asked him for his driver's license, which he produced. His name was Axton Schindler, and he lived at 1035 El Dorado. And when Smith ran his name through the computer, she said that it came up clean besides some unpaid traffic tickets. And suddenly, Rodriguez started shouting, Oh, don't arrest him. That's the man that saved me from the killer. That's him. The officers looked at the address again. 1035 El Dorado. It was not out in South Dallas where Rodriguez's attack allegedly took place. It was in an Oak Cliff neighborhood just a five-minute drive from the star. The man, a sort of nervous guy who spoke incredibly fast, said he had no idea what Rodriguez was talking about. He said that he had known her for years and was just giving her a ride to motel. He didn't try to protect her from any killer. He didn't even have sex with her. He was just a long-distance truck driver doing her a favor. Rodriguez, the officers decided, was lying once again. They carted her off to jail for prostitution and hauled Schindler in for his unpaid tickets. And although Matthews and Smith would not know it for months, a clue to the murderer's identity, the murderer's identity had fallen brightly in their laps. The second victim was found in February of 1991 on a Sunday morning on the same South Dallas road where Mary Pratt's body had been found. Like Pratt, she was mostly naked. And like Pratt, she was a sex worker. Her name was Susan Peterson, and she was just 27 years old. She had been shot in the head, the chest, and the stomach, and her eyelids were closed. Because her body was discovered at the other end of the road, just outside the city limits, the jurisdiction for the case fell to the Dallas County Sheriff's Department. A detective named Larry Oliver, who had not heard about Mary Pratt's death, was called to the scene. And eerily, the same scenario unfolded. Oliver accompanied the body to the autopsy room, where the pathologist began the standard external examination. The pathologist opened one lid, one eyelid, and then the other and then he motioned for Oliver to come close to the table. Oliver didn't believe what he was seeing. The dead woman's eyes had been expertly cut out. When the pathologist mentioned that the Dallas Police Department had a similar case just two months earlier, Oliver did some checking, and within 24 hours, he had traveled to the police department's homicide offices to see John was fallen. 
Soon there were meetings with sergeants and lieutenants and with the chief in charge of the homicide. And while police officials deliberately avoided the phrase serial killings to describe what was happening, West Fallon kept referring to the killer as a repeater. Everyone in the room knew what they were hunting for. A twisted, brilliant murderer, someone who dropped bodies on quiet residential streets where they were certain to be found the next morning. At that point, a contingent of detectives favored keeping a lid on the story. If the press discovered the killings were linked and turned the spotlight on the Star Motel, the killer might get nervous and start picking up women from other areas. But homicide supervisors decided that the police department had a greater obligation to warn the community that it might be in danger, even if it meant warning sex workers. Besides, publicizing the case might bring in some leads because at this point there was little else to go on. And I'm really glad they did this. Um, a lot of times when we are discussing serial killers and serial murders, the police don't want to alarm the public until they really have definitive evidence and put together that there is somebody doing the same type of killing. In this case, because the MO was so specific, the cutting out of surgical removal of the eyeballs, they clearly knew that they didn't have two separate people doing this. And because they hadn't released this information um, when they we're talking about Mary Pratt's murder to the media, no one knew that her eyes were missing. So because that was the case, there was no way for there to be a copycat. And certainly the odds of two people going around murdering sex workers and surgically removing their eyes is, is pretty slim to none, right? So, and if the killer could get someone as smart and resourceful as Susan Peterson, Matthews and Smith surmised that he could probably get any of the women. They figured that the killer knew every corner of the area, all the alleys and the streets, and he was able to pick up Peterson and vanish within seconds. He also must have been one of her regular customers. Otherwise, she would have never let her guard down, and certainly she wouldn't have allowed him to shoot her three times. She would have pulled a razor and fought back. This time when Matthews and Smith pulled up to the star, the sex workers didn't keep their distance. They poured out of their rooms and surrounded the squad car and began to pass on their own personal list of suspects. The women talked about the women talked about the men who wanted to tie them up or whip them. And Smith made her usual impassioned speech, asking the girls to get off the street. But the black sex workers, at least, were not buying it. They said, "Quote: He's after the white girls, honey, not us." They said. Oddly enough. The black sex workers saw the killings as an opportunity for them to get more business. And then there was Veronica Rodriguez. Rodriguez had been telling a lot of people any number of stories since the killings began. And at first she said she had witnessed Mary Pratt being shot. Then she said she had been with a man who had bragged about killing Pratt. Then she said she knew nothing at all about Pratt's death. About her own rape in the South Dallas field, she no longer said that the killer was white. Now he was Hispanic. And then she said he might have been black. And almost everyone who spoke with her thought that she was, quote, brain fried from drugs. What bothered Matthews, however, was that Rodriguez had never changed her basic story about being attacked. Usually she would forget whatever pity story she had told the day before. Did someone really try to kill her in a field? And could that man who supposedly saved her, Axton Schlindler, know the killer too? Or could Schlindler have something to do with the killing himself? And could that be the real reason that Rodriguez had changed her story? Simply because she was afraid. Officers Matthew and Smith weren't really sure what to do after this. They had 
already told the homicide division that Rodriguez claimed to have information about Mary Pratt, and they had mentioned the attack and the possible Axton Schindler connection. And with that, they figured they had done their job. It would have been way out of line for two young officers to cross into homicide's territory and conduct a murder investigation on their own. Later, Wes Fallon would say that he never got the officer's tips. And among all the phone calls, all the messages, all the reports flooding in, the name Axton Schindler never crossed his desk, he said. And whatever the case, a potential break was slipping away, and the killer was preparing to strike again. He and Dell, who died of cancer in 1981, were not as close in her last years. Dell was extremely disappointed in the way that he had turned out, and while Albright had found his mom mother to be a pest, especially when she would bang on his door early on Saturday mornings to get his help with her little fixer-up projects, but his final gesture of devotion to his mother, Albright went out and brought a dress for the undertaker to put on her body, the first new dress that he had ever seen Dell wear. And surprisingly, he wept at her funeral, racked with guilt, or maybe guilt, grief, or maybe guilt over the ways in which he had let her down. He also cried at Fred's funeral a few years later. Frankly, it had not been until Dell's death that Albright and his father had become close. Albright remembered how his mother had constantly nagged her quiet husband and bickered with him about the house, and with her gone, his father seemed more relaxed. Several nights a week, Albright would take him to dinner at a nearby cafeteria. So Fred's fatal heart attack in 1986, Albright inherited at least $96,000 along with all of his parents' homes and properties in South Dallas. For what friends said were sentimental reasons, he kept the properties in his father's names. To bring in some extra money, he rented out one of the tiny ramshackle frame homes on a street called Cotton Valley to a truck driver named Axton Schindler. Known as Speedy because he talked so fast, Schindler was a singularly weird individual. He stacked the rooms of his house with trash up to three feet high. He put an automobile engine in the living room. He lived without electricity and running water. He used a Coleman lantern for light and a bottled water to wash himself up. Albright's friends said that he should get another renter, that Speedy was just too unusual. But the always agreeable Albright, who had met Schindler through a female friend, said that he wasn't that bad of a fellow, and so he let him stay. At this point, Albright had made the decision to move back into his old family home in Oak Cliff, which, like the rental homes, was still listed in the property's roles under Fred's name. And all the neighborhood had grown somewhat shabby over the years and the house was in need of a paint job, Albright said the place would do nicely. This is where he moved his new love Dixie Austin down from Arkansas and together they settled in for a quiet romantic life. The address of their home? 1035 El Dorado. At this point, March 19th of 1991, John Westfallon has filled up four black spiral notebooks with notes on the sexual assaults and murders of these sex workers, and he had gone back and re-examined the crime scenes. Special undercover units had been sent to stake out the prostitution areas and run computer checks on license plates of vehicles that cruised by just to see if the owners might have some unusual criminal records, and he came up with nothing. This was a killer in total control, a man who refused to panic. We've got to answer three questions, Wes Fallon said again and again at meetings about the case. Number one, why is he after sex workers? Number two, why were bodies dumped on the same street? And number three, why did he cut those eyes out? Sitting around Wes Fallon's battleship, a gray metal desk in the heart of a fluorescent homicide office, 
detectives started throwing out theories. They said maybe he was out for revenge because one of the sex workers had given him AIDS or maybe he believed this old superstition that a murderer's image always remains on the eyeballs of the person he kills. Maybe he believed the dead person's eyes would follow him forever or maybe he took them to fuel some sexual fantasy. Maybe it was a cannibalistic fantasy. Maybe he wanted to cook them or eat them. The only thing that John Westphalen knew for sure was that the killer came out late at night and was strong enough to drag those girls in and out of a car and had surgical kills. Skills. He also probably needed to do this in a well-lit room. Somebody said maybe this guy is even a doctor. But suddenly in the early morning hours of March 19th, the killer changed tactics. On Fort Worth Boulevard, another sex worker hangout a few miles from the star, a black prostitute named Shirley Williams emerged from the Avalon Motel where she worked as a maid during the day and turned tricks at night. According to another sex worker who saw her, Shirley was wearing jeans and a yellow raincoat and appeared to be in a stuporous drug high as she tottered alone on the sidewalk. She was found at 6.20 the next morning, dumped on a residential street half a block from an elementary school in the heart of Oak Cliff. As children walked to school, they could see the naked woman crumpled against the curb, and unopened condoms was beside her body. Go look at her eyes and tell me if they're there, Wes Fallon said to the medical examiner's field agent at the scene. The field agent flipped open the eyelids. Gone, he said. Wes Fallon turned to his partner, Stan McNear. And now we've got number three, he said. The autopsy on Shirley Williams' body would show that the surgery had been hurried. The broken tip of an exacto blade was found embedded in the skin near her right eye. But there were still no witnesses, no murder weapons, and no fingerprints. And worse, the killer had now murdered a black woman and he had moved locations. Just as the detectives had feared, the publicity about the case had sent the killer away from the star and his South Dallas dumping ground. There was no telling where or when he would hit again. Once the word of Shirley Williams' killing spread, the Star Motel turned into a ghost town. Most of the sex workers, black and white, told the officers, John Matthews and Regina Smith, that they were leaving Dallas. Others said that they were just getting out of the business. A few women so desperate for drug money that they couldn't leave moved together to a street corner next to the home of a man who promised to serve as their lookout and bodyguard. Cruising the area, Matthews and Smith spied a black sex worker, Brenda White, a 17-year-old veteran of the neighborhood. White tended to work alone on a street corner in front of a church away from the other sex workers. The officers decided to stop and make sure she knew about the murders. She replied to them, well, I'm going to get my black ass out of here. I just had, a, had to mace a man who jumped bad on me the other night. White told the officers that a few days before, a trick in a dark station wagon had pulled up alongside her and that he had gotten in the car. He was a husky-looking white man with salt-and-pepper hair, cowboy boots, and blue jeans. Let's go to a motel, she told him. He said, no, I've got a spot we can use. As a way to protect herself, White never allowed a new customer to take her anywhere but a motel, so she told him to drop her off immediately. Suddenly, a change came over his face, she recalled. It was like anger and rage. She said he, claimed, he yelled, I hate whores. I'm going to kill all you mother-effing whores. And before he had a chance to grab her, White shot a stream of mace into his face, threw open the door, jumped out, and broke the heel on one of her favorite red leather pumps. For the rest of the day, Matthews and Smith could not shake White's story from their minds. They flipped through their notebooks, and they thought about everything that they had been told since the killings began. And they always returned to Veronica's Rodriguez's rambling and talk about being raped. 
The next morning, as they were checking in for work at their substation, they said, we need to run a computer check on that Axton Schindler. Because county government computers contain more information about citizens than city computers, she and Matthews drove to the Dallas County Constable's office near Jefferson Boulevard. There, a deputy count constable on duty, Walter Cook, agreed to help them. And so they seated around the terminal. The officers asked Cook to type in Schindler's address, 1035 El Dorado. The name Fred Albright popped up as the owner of the property, a name they had never heard before. So Cook punched in another code, and it turned out that Fred Albright also owned property on a street called Cotton Valley. Wasn't Cotton Valley in the very neighborhood in South Dallas where the first two prostitutes were found? Cook kept typing. This Fred Albright, the computer reported, was dead. So Matthews and Smith stared at the screen. The only clue in the case led them to a dead man. Then after a pause, Cook said softly, maybe this has something to do with the man named Charles Albright. Several weeks before, Cook explained that he had come to the office early one morning and answered a call from a woman who would not identify herself. The woman had been friends with Mary Pratt, and she said, and through Pratt, that she had met a man whom she had briefly dated. He was a nice man, she said, but had an odd love for eyes. She also happened to mention that he kept exacto blades in his attic. Cook asked for the, names man, the man's name. Charles Albright, she said. If any other constable's deputy had been helping Matthews and Smith that day, the link to Albright might have never been made. But good fortune prevailed. Cook typed in another code and the personal information for Charles Albright popped up on the screen. Born August 10, 1933. Address 1035 El Dorado. Somehow, they said, Schindler and Albright were connected. Perhaps Albright was Schindler's friend, the one who had tried to kill Veronica Rodriguez. Their hearts racing, Matthews and Smith rushed to the county's identification division to see Albright's criminal record. The officers discovered the strings of thefts, burglaries, and forgeries, and the charge of sexual intercourse with a child. The clerk then pulled out a mugshot of Albright, a photo of a rather handsome, well-built man with gray hair, angular features, and deep-set dark eyes, just like the man that Brenda White had described. In the picture, Albright was frowning, his face perplexed. The clerk wondered why Smith was so excited. Honey, Smith said, I think we've got the killer. And on their way to the homicide department, Matthews and Smith rehearsed everything they wanted to say. They didn't want to seem unprepared, and it was nervy enough for two patrol officers to visit the legendary John Westphalen and tell him they believed they had found a killer, although they had no real solid evidence to prove it. John Westphalen greeted them politely. Matthews started and then Smith interrupted and soon they were both talking at once. And Westphalen sighed. Calm down, he said. Let's take it slow. And a few minutes later, after they had finished their presentation, Westphalen decided that they were on to something. He put a photo, of, a photo lineup of six mugshots together and told Matthews and Smith to show it to Brenda White. Immediately, Smith and Matthews tracked White down on her usual street corner and asked her if she recognized any of the men in the mugshots. Brenda White unhesitatingly pointed to Albright's picture and said that he was the man who attacked her. A little while later, they showed the same lineup to Veronica Rodriguez, and according to Matthews, when Rodriguez got to the third picture, Albright's, she started trembling. Suddenly fearful, she refused to identify anyone. Matthews called West Fallon with the bad news. Rodriguez is so afraid of the killer, he said, that she won't pick out his picture. 
Bring her down here to see me, was Fallon growled. He knew that if he could get Rodriguez to break, he wouldn't have, he couldn't have or wouldn't have the evidence to go after Charles Albright. Brenda White's story offered only the prospect of a misdemeanor assault charge. But if Rodriguez identified Albright, the Dallas police could file charges for attempted murder, get a search warrant, and look for through his house for evidence that might connect him to the three murders. Smith and Matthews dragged Rodriguez downtown, and in a small interrogation room, was Fallon stared with his icy blue eyes at Rodriguez, and she began to shake and cry. She wouldn't look at the pictures laid out behind, in front of her. Trying to control his anger, Wes Fallon took a different tact. He told Rodriguez about the three other girls and how they were killed and how the police couldn't get the killer off the street without her help. This is so easy, he said. Pick out the picture of the guy assaulted you and we will put him in jail where he can't hurt you. Slowly, Rodriguez looked over the mugshots. While Wes Fallon and another officer watched, she reached over for Albright's photo, turned it over, and signed her name. At 2.30 in the morning on March 22nd, as a gentle rain fell on Oak Cliff, a team of tactical officers burst through the front door of 1035 El Dorado. And despite the home's shabby exterior, the treasures of Charlie Albright's eclectic life decorated room after room. One cabinet was filled with exotic champagne glasses. Another held expensive figurines of pretty young women. On the wall were Life magazine covers and Marilyn Monroe movie posters. As Charles Albright was handcuffed and led away, he never said a word. Stumbling out of bed in her nightgown, Dixie Austin looked incredulously at Albright and then back at the police. Unable to imagine what the man she loved could have done, she began to scream. For a long time after Charles Albright's arrest, most people involved in this case wondered whether the police even had enough evidence to convict him of murder. And despite a withering all-night interrogation by John Westphalen, Albright refused to confess to anything. He acted as if he had never even heard the names of these murdered sex workers. Police searched through every square inch of all of his South Dallas properties. They searched his Oak Cliff home six times. The FBI even brought in high-tech machines that could see through the walls. And although the searches produced an array of interesting items, carpenters, woodworking blades, exacto blades, a copy of Gray's Anatomy, at least a dozen true crime books, they never came up with the missing eyeballs. And behind Charlie's hand-built fireplace mantle, the police discovered a hidden compartment filled with pistols and rifles. None, however, turned out to be the, the murder weapon. Nor could the police find anyone who would admit to seeing Charlie with the three sex workers on the nights they were killed. Dixie claimed that on the nights in question, Charlie did not leave the house early for his paper route and that he had come home on time. And as the trial date arrived, Veronica Rodriguez decided to testify as a witness for the defense. She claimed that she and Albright had never been together and that Wes Fallon had coerced her into picking Albright's photograph from a lineup. Ashton Schindler continued to deny that he had saved Rodriguez from Albright. He said a Hispanic man named Joe had brought her to his door. But Toby Shook, a low-key 33-year-old prosecutor working for the Dallas County District Attorney's Office, had a trump card. For the first time in its history, the DA's office was going to offer or go for a murder conviction based solely on controversial hair evidence. Days after Albright's arrest, the city's forensic lab reported that the hairs found on the bodies of the dead women were similar to hair samples taken from Albright's head and pubic area. 
as evidence goes, hairs are not as conclusive as fingerprints because it's impossible to tell how many other gray-haired men's hairs might look similar to Albright's hairs under a microscope. Yet, in this case, the lab kept running tests. Lab technicians said that hairs found on the blankets in the back of Albright's pickup truck were similar to the hair samples from the first two sex workers killed, Mary Pratt and Susan Peterson. Hairs found in Albright's vacuum cleaner matched the hair from the third prostitute killed sex worker, Shirley Williams. An additional piece of the puzzle came from John Matthews and Regina Smith. The officers found another sex worker, Tina Connolly, who claimed that Albright was one of her regular afternoon customers on Fort Worth Boulevard. She never saw him cruise after dark, she said, except for one time. The night Shirley Williams disappeared. Connolly took Matthews and Smith to a secluded field near Fort Worth Boulevard where Albright used to take her for sex, and there they spotted a yellow raincoat just like the one Williams was last seen wearing and a blanket. Hairs on the coat and blanket matched Albright's hair. Charles Albright's defense attorney, Brad Lolar, tried to convince the jury that the case against Albright depended on the flimsiest of circumstantial evidence. The killer, he said, was probably Axton Schindler, who just happened to skip town the week of the trial. Admittedly, the police had many unanswered questions about Schindler. West Fallon had spent hours interrogating him, trying to determine if he assisted Albright in these killings or was at least aware that Albright was murdering women on the rental property. But there was nothing to tie him to the case except for an empty 44 caliber bullet box found behind the house, which Albright might have dropped there himself. When Schindler and Albright's photos were shown to dozens of sex workers, none of them recognized Schindler, but many recognized Albright, nor were any of the hairs found on the dead women linked to Schindler. Most, most importantly, no one had ever met Action Schindler could imagine that he had the slightest skill required to perfectly remove a set of human eyes. Albright never testified, and throughout the trial he sat quietly in his chair with his shoulders slumped like a weak, humbled figure. Shook in his closing argument, derisively called Albright, court this quote, this former biology teacher, bullfighter, college ace, smart man who just can't seem to have a job. But Shook warned the jury not to underestimate Albright, that he had grown much smarter during this trial, and that if he ever got out of jail, he wouldn't make the same mistakes again. On December 19th, when the jury returned a guilty verdict and a life sentence, Dixie collapsed in the courtroom. Albright's friends avoided reporters in the courthouse, courthouse hallway. It was if they didn't want to be blamed for having lived with a vicious killer without recognizing him for what he was. But a stunned Brad Lawler, who genuinely thought he was going to get his client acquitted, strode tight-lipped out of the courtroom. It's always a miscarriage of justice, he told the press, when an innocent man is convicted. Albright was sentenced to life without parole, and he died in a West Texas regional medical facility in Lubbock, Texas, in August of 2020. A short note and something that I want to point out to you. Um, I have tried my best to kind of cover all of the evidence presented here um, in a way that makes sense to everybody. Um, and these cases are considered closed by Dallas PD. Um, they're considered solved because this person was put away and now he's dead. But I will say this. They convicted him with hair evidence. And if you know me and you've listened to the show, I'm still very much a stickler. For evidence 
And I do not think that in this case, it really met the evidentiary threshold here. Like not to, and I say that to say that it is quite possible that he got help or that someone else did these things. Sure. Now, does the circumstantial evidence lead you to believe that yes, he is the person that did this? Yes, the taxidermy, the ability to cut out the eyes, things that any of the other suspects that they had would probably not be able to do. However, I want to point out that later they were able to, or DNA test the hair fiber or hair evidence that they said matched, found at the Shirley Williams murder scene. It turned out that those hairs were from a dog. They weren't actually even Charles Albright's hair. I do not believe that the wrong person was convicted. I do believe that Charles Albright did murder those women. And I do believe that he did cut out their eyeballs for whatever reason and destroyed them or hid them or buried them or put them somewhere that they would not be found by the police. I absolutely believe that Charles Albright is the person who committed these murders. I do believe that sometimes forensic evidence can be wrong. And we're talking about the early 90s when forensics was really in its infancy. And I also, again, do not believe a lot of times that unless you are talking about hair and fibers, unless it is very specific, you cannot really match those to any. They're looking under a microscope and you can only say that they are similar. And my hair could be similar to any number of other people's hair out there and without a root for DNA purposes, you have no way of knowing that. And so until they were able to identify with DNA that this was dog hair, they fully assumed that this was Albright's hair. So again, I, I think that it is one of those things where when you're talking in terms of evidence, it's not great evidence. I, I do think that he was convicted on some very shoddy evidence in that regard, but I do feel like the right person is behind bars. Um, again, I. I'd say this, and you know how I am on this show. I am very critical of the police. I think that they really did try to do their due diligence here. Um, but these are difficult crimes to solve. Um, we think about so many other people who were murdering sex workers and how long they were able to get away with doing those things. You think about the um, Hillside Stranglers, um, the Times Square Killer, uh, Robert Hansen, you think about uh, the Green River Killer. All of them were able to kill under the radar and for years because of the victims they were choosing and the police's basically um, ignoring what was happening and they're basically not wanting to look into the murders of sex workers or sex workers or prostitutes as they as they would have called them so it is unfortunate i am glad that the dallas pd did, did pd did try to take the situation seriously and were able to catch him before he killed any more people but i still think that perhaps if we look at this in the lens of 2023 it is very possible that charles albright wouldn't have been convicted um or charles albright had he been alive would have been able to appeal this evidence especially after they found out that it was dog hair so basically they did convict this man using a combination of circumstantial evidence and and dog hair that they said was his um which i absolutely do not like do not care for and that is hard to say i am glad a, a killer and a murderer was ultimately taken off the streets but it is sometimes concerning when you look at how evidence can be interpreted or looked at one particular way and jurors are supposed to 
believe that what they are seeing or what they are being told they saw is solid evidence, solid scientific research or science scientific method that led to these results. And in this case, that simply was not the case. But in the early 90s, nobody really knew that. So that is the Dallas Ripper or the eyeball killer, Charles Albright. Uh, please let me know what you thought of this episode. It was a difficult one to discuss um, just because, as everyone knows, that I'm always on the side of, of sex workers and marginalized people because so very often in the stories and their stories that we're talking about, they are the ones that are being murdered and nobody is paying attention and very often they get overlooked um, and nobody is is fighting for justice for them. So I'm so glad that they got the justice that they deserved in this situation. If you'd like to reach out to me or the show, you can follow me on the show's Twitter, which is now X, but I'm just going to call it Twitter because it's mama named it Twitter. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter. My personal page is at VJ underscore Burton, as well as my Insta at VJ underscore Burton. And the show's page is at murder V pod, murder V E E P O D. And it is the same on Instagram. You can also email the show if you have any ideas for show ideas or notes or anything that you just want to tell me, you can reach the show at murder V pod at gmail.com. Um, and I think that that is it for us. Pretty sure I don't have anything else this week. Um, so I'll check back with you next week. Um, August kicks off cult month here at Murder V Pod. So when we are back next week, we will talk all things cults for the next four weeks. And I look forward to seeing you back here. Um, of course, like, rate, subscribe. Um, if you have not done that on Spotify, um, uh, if you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating um, or review. I'd really appreciate it if you take the time to do that. Would love that. Um, reach out and let me know on Twitter or Instagram if you do leave a review and you would like a sticker or something of that regard, and I'm happy to mail it out to you. Um, thanks again for listening. This has been Murder V Pod, and I'm your host, V.